Ladies and gentlemen, I think we're ready to begin. A very warm welcome to Green Templeton College to the annual lecture series. And as many of you in the audience know, this, uh, this year's theme is Living by Numbers, Big Data and Society. And the series is asking about what is the digital future and how it will, will it significantly change our lives. Um, I'd like to thank Mary Daly, uh, the academic tutor for organising the lecture series, and Sue Drakes and my colleagues for the fine administrative arrangements. This is the final lecture of four in the series for 2016. We've heard from Susan Halford of Southampton University on research using Twitter, from Helen Margots of the Oxford Internet Institute about how the internet and social media uh, can bring about social change, political change. Um, and the last talk, Tim Lang, uh, Professor of Food Policy at City University, explored the significance of the emerging emergence of big data in the world of food. Today we look forward to hearing Sir John Bell, an immunologist and geneticist, talk to us about big data and biomedical research. Um, I have quite a long list of, of his achievements. He asked me not to read any of it. <laughs> Um, and I think I can take as read that everybody knows Sir John Bell, um, who since 2002 has held the Regis Chair of Medicine at Oxford University. Um, so just one word before I pass across to John. I think that his work in the intersection of the public, the commercial and the charitable sectors in medicine make him excellently placed, maybe even uniquely placed, to address the issue of data, its power and value, as well as the obstacles to its free flow across borders. So I certainly am looking forward to hearing him, as I know you are. The format of the evening is that after Sir John has spoken, for about 50 minutes, he tells me, we will um, open up for questions, comments from the floor, and then Dame Valerie uh, Beryl, a fellow here at GTC, will give a vote of thanks. So I'll pass across to Sir John Bell. Well, thank you very much. It's a real pleasure to be here um, and to get a, uh, have an opportunity to contribute to this very interesting series on big data. Um, what I want to do to this evening is to take you through why I think one of the huge opportunities in the handling of large data sets will occur in the biomedical arena. Now, in one sense, it was perhaps one of the fields of human endeavor which has been the slowest to use large data sets and the slowest to digitize and the slowest to realize its value. But ultimately, in the end, I think this is going to be a, a, a transformative change for the way we do medical research and the way we understand disease. And we know that currently the healthcare um, paradigm is being challenged, and it's being challenged by a variety of problems. The first is that diseases as we know them are relatively poorly def defined. The interventions we use are usually applied quite late, and they are uh, at best marginally effective. Uh, all that leads to healthcare systems that are financially stressed, particularly by changes in demography and by the epidemic of chronic disease that we're now witnessing. Uh, now, innovation continues 
to generate um, huge benefits for healthcare. But even innovation doesn't, isn't applied very effectively in our healthcare systems, largely because we don't have a better understanding of disease entities. And healthcare systems as systems are often blind to knowledge about patients and disease that could ultimately be revealed by better digitization. So that, that, that lays out what I'd like to talk about tonight is how we're actually right in a period of time where our understanding of a disease, our ability to treat it much more effectively and much more cost effectively is going to be realized. Now, the way I like to start is to go back a few years and just to remind people that our definition of diseases um, was even more primitive in the past than it is now, but the problems were the same, and that is this is the list of deaths in London uh, in the middle of the 16th century, and if you, this is done by what's essentially the coroner, and he counted the bodies, the numbers are here, you can see the big number next to plague over here. But these are the diseases. This is essentially the textbook of medicine or the taxonomy of medicine from that period of time. And you will note that not many of these names represent diseases that we recognize today. I mean, we know about cough, that killed one person. We know about convulsions, that killed 81. But they're not really diseases. Frighted killed one, gout killed one. This is my favorite. This is for Neil Mortensen. This is griping in the gut. Um, but you can see there is a problem. Rifing of the lights is one of my favorite. That killed 16 people. So we, the medical profession has been very good at nomenclature, but not very good at hooking that nomenclature up to things that are mechanistically important. And this, I think, reveals the problem. And that's been a problem since um, the beginning of medicine. And to be clear, that problem still exists. So although we can all have a chuckle about what was going on um, in the 16th century, the truth is 100 years from now, people will laugh at this slide because this is the way we currently think about taxonomy and we don't do it very well. So sometimes we have a taxonomy in medicine which is based on purely on symptoms. And, and these are diseases which we know to be symptom-based. And this is this is our modern equivalent of griping of the guts. It's called irritable bowel syndrome. It's the same thing. You, the patient comes in and says, well, I've got a funny tummy, and we give it a name, and then some pharmaceutical company will develop a drug against it, believe it or not, and, um, and that's the problem. The same thing with probably so fibro. I've got a rheumatologist in the front row. I'm sorry, Paul, but that is a bit funny. But, now, but there are other sort of phenotypic definitions of disease that are done... Um, by other practitioners like pathologists. And this is a terrific name of the disease. doesn't mean anything except that when he looks down the microscope, he sees lots of blood vessels, big lymphocytes, and big lymph nodes. doesn't tell you anything about disease mechanisms. And it, what's interesting about this disease, it was very popular in the late 1970s. And then people, I think, because it was so difficult to spell, stopped using it. And now you don't find it anywhere. Not, it's not an animal. So... It's a, it, that's, that's the best cure of a disease I've ever seen. Um, sometimes we use physiological measurements to define disease. So these are quantitative traits. People have high blood pressure, low blood pressure. They're all normal distributions. We arbitrarily draw a line and say everybody on the right-hand side has got a disease and on the left-hand side they don't. It's not really a very effective way of defining disease entities. We're still okay at eponymous uh, names for disease, 
um, Alzheimer's disease, Bell's palsy. I, uh, the Alzheimer's disease story I like best is if you go back and look at his original paper of six pa patients with Alzheimer's disease, uh, apparently only one of them actually had Alzheimer's disease. So <laughs> you can still whack your name on things which are not exactly precisely defined. And then when we roam into the area particularly of cancer, we've let the surgeons lead in the way we define disease because the organ that we point the surgeons at is the basis for the disease definition. We, of course, now know that these are hugely heterogeneous diseases, and there are some breast cancers that are more similar to ovarian cancer than other breast cancers. So, again, that sort of organ-based system is not that helpful. And then what I like to call the end-of-the-road diagnostic system, which is you take the organ, which doesn't seem to be working very well, and you bang the term failure after it, and then you've got a disease entity, and that litters the notes of patients throughout the John Radcliffe Hospital. So this is not medicine's finest hour, to be honest. It's got lots of issues. Because, of course, if you don't really know what's causing the disease, you'll never really develop a decent therapy for it. You won't know how to manage the patients. Your prediction of natural history will be lousy, and the whole system won't work. So that's kind of my first slide. Uh, but uh, uh, Thomas Lewis and others, but Thomas Lewis in particular, was really clear about this in a series of of uh, pieces he wrote for The Lancet in 1944, and here he describes the, the idea that many diseases are fully understood as an illusion. We clearly understand a phenomena here or there. Those we think we understand become our pride and bulk largely in our consciousness. Those we do not understand are conveniently ignored, or more often we give them names and deceive ourselves that we understand them. So, I mean, this is not, none of this is new. People have known it for some time, but at the same time, nobody's fixed it. And the, the, the problem that this gives is that because these disease entities are hugely heterogeneous, that even therapies which you might think were mechanistically helpful uh, actually only really work in relatively small percentages of people um, with these diseases. So here, for example, the uh, antidepressant drugs work in only 38% of the population who are depressed which may sound okay, except that we know that placebo works in 30%. So that's not we're, not, we're not really steaming along there. Asthma works in 40%. I'll give you some of the reasons for that uh, later in the talk. Diabetes drugs, similarly, this is all hopeless. And, and this, this is a slide from the pharmaceutical industry. I think they're hopelessly optimistic about the efficacy of cancer drugs, frankly. But they, that, that's the problem. And, that is, and this is one of the reasons why the healthcare system doesn't work is because we are not targeting our medicines in any kind of precise way. So this has given rise to this interesting concept that we could use data, large sets of data, to try and more precisely understand the diseases that we're trying to treat. And this is a slide that comes out of Sue Hellman's IOM report on precision medicine. She coined the term precision medicine. It used to be called stratified medicine before that personalized medicine, but it's essentially the concept that there are lots of data points that one can use that actually help you get the coordinates of precisely what type of disease a person has. And they could be anything from electronic health records, molecular characterization, which means genetics, epigenetics, proteomics, and the likes, but also response to therapy, um, um, clinical diagnostics, and that generates a, a new tax, a ta taxonomy for disease, which one would hope would allow us to be much more precise 
in the way we use our therapies. And I'll try and give some examples later in the talk about how that really has genuinely, truly transformed the way we manage disease. And that concept has really merged with this um, uh, excitement about accessing very large data sets from a whole variety of different settings, digital pathology, imaging, <coughs> phenotype lab tests, digital monitoring, genomics and likes, and that from those, one should be able to generate a much more precise understanding about the type of disease a person has, being allowing one to then predict uh, natural history much more effectively, but also allowing one to choose therapeutic interventions that are likely to be more like 80 or 90% effective rather than 20, 30, or 40% effective. So that's, that's the dream, and I think we're making some progress in that direction. So the big data agenda in medicine really began from the ability to generate very large data sets at a molecular level. Uh, and, and that, I think, is a territory where the UK has had an astounding contribution because you can go all the way back to Darwin, of course, who knew nothing about DNA or Mendel or anything else, but his theory of evolution underpins our whole conceptual understanding of how DNA transmits particular phenotypic traits. And it was really Garrod, who was here as Regis Professor in the 1920s, who was the first to recognize what he called chemical individuality, which is essentially the biochemical and genetic basis of disease, but was also crucially important in recognizing the interaction of genetics with environment. He's, ne he's never credited with that because it was published in a monograph that he published on his retirement. Uh, but it's a very clear description about, uh, particularly in the field of asthma, how the interaction of environmental factors and genetic factors mediate disease. Then, of course, the discovery of DNA uh, in Cambridge, Fred Sanger's discovery of um, DNA sequencing. Ed Southern here and Alec Jeffries in Leicester did uh, beautiful work trying to uh, develop new technologies for quantitating and measuring genomic variation. And then we went through a whole era where, again, the UK played a crucially important role the sequencing the human genome, finished in 2002. International HapMap project, where Peter Donnelly and Lon Cardin and others played a very important role in defining the way genetic variants were linked together in the genome. And then the process of beginning to understand how the genome contributed to disease, led really by whole genome um, uh, the, the association studies, of which the most important one was led by Peter Donnelly in the Gene Center, the Walking Trust Case Control Consortium. I'll come back to that in a minute. The new generation sequencing tools, which have dramatically reduced the cost of sequencing so that having cost a billion dollars to sequence the first genome, human genome, it now costs about $800 to do another human genome, any, any single human genome. So that's one of the great successes in modern technology, and that's led to a whole cascade of other opportunities. Uh, the current sequencing technology discovered in Cambridge by... Shanker, and also by David Klenerman, Peter Donnelly, responsible for WGS 500 study, and Hagen Bailey here with the most up-to-date sequencing technology, Oxford Nanopore. And all those tools are leading into a, a new era for genomics where the scale of data is really quite remarkable. And as you know, the Genomics England project is sequencing 100,000 whole genomes, 
and that will be undoubtedly the world's biggest repository of genetic sequence variants linked up to clinical data. Now, just to give you a sense as to the speed at which this data has been generated at a molecular level, in 2007, one of these dots, and I can never find it, but I think it's in here, was discovered based on a single study characterizing a large number of people with age-related macular degeneration and looking at a large number of variants around the genome. And it showed that there was an association between one of these variants and and age-related macular degeneration. And that turned out to be a component of the complement cascade. It's now a drug target, looks hugely effective for the treatment of that disease. Those studies are in late-stage trials. But then in the meanwhile, since 2007, and to be clear, that's uh, uh, less than 10 years, the genome has been populated by literally thousands of associations with human disease. And uh, virtually every human disease that's been mapped except being struck by lightning, uh, has come up with a genetic association of one sort or another, and sometimes multiple ones. So the pace at which this has moved has been really quite dramatic. And to be clear, these are not trivial associations. These are highly, highly significant associations, and most of them confirmed in multiple studies. So this has already changed our understanding of the underpinning mechanisms of many diseases, and it's likely to move those even further. But in addition to DNA sequencing, there are lots of other tools that we use to generate these large data sets. RNA sequencing is helpful, the sequencing of microRNAs, uh, other types of arrays. Uh, pathology, of course, uh, has the capacity of being digitized and yielding very large amounts of rich data, uh, but also a whole variety of tools for monitoring immunological phenotypes as well as the tools for handling and managing tissues. So there's this this huge avalanche of molecular data, which is now available and which now can be systematically managed around individual diseases and individual patients. Um, This is the uh, medical record system at the Oxford Radcliffe NHS Trust, as you can see all the... That's a joke, Bruno. So so this is the way we used to manage healthcare records. These are not not pictures from Oxford, so we deny all that. But this this has been a common problem in the NHS. And when you think about it, there is a huge amount of very, very informative data in a patient's individual longitudinal record from their exposure to healthcare. And this, in my view, is the great opportunity and the great challenge in the next few years is to how to harness this kind of data and add it to our digitized records. Because we've already done that for the molecular stuff, and we can get genomics, proteomics. We can get a whole set of molecular diagnostics in play for any given patient. But what you really need is a much better ability to capture those very fine details that one gets, particularly uh, as a result of hospital admissions, where most of the investigations and major diagnoses are made. And that, I think, is an enormous opportunity and one that the NHS should be seizing uh, as quickly as it can because it will have a huge impact not only on how we run the NHS but also on what we understand about patients. Um, And there are a whole set of, um, uh, of data sets which are potentially available for that. Primary care records are almost entirely digitized, and now 45 million are digitized by the same company, which is called EMIS. 
Um, now, it, it's only literally within the last week or two that there has been progress in trying to make those accessible to people who are trying to uh, um, aggregate data sets within the NHS. But that, I think, is now inevitable. So those data sets will be available and are potentially very powerfully helpful. Um, there is a health episode statistic database, which is a record of all hospital admissions. Again, an extremely powerful and useful data set, which is now again available for people trying to undertake these studies to define disease. It went offline for a bit while they sorted out um, the governance issues at HSCIC, but that, as I understand, is back in action. Hospital data is more, a more of a challenging problem. I mean, my guess is about half the hospitals have some kind of electronic record of their patients. There are only very few with comprehensive data sets, and uh, of those, uh, I, I think Birmingham may be uh, the best. They've got a homemade system. Um, but there are lots of people who are trying, including the hospital here, which has been making considerable progress with their system. So I anticipate that hospital data will increasingly become available in the near future. Cancer registries, we know about this data is not that great, to be honest, but there's now a big effort to try and improve the quality of cancer follow-up data, and there are large numbers of new cancers every year, so that'll be important. Genomics England is driving the data agenda in rare disease, eight different types of cancer, as well as collecting whole genome data. And there are a variety of regional data sets which are collecting various types of comprehensive data of health and social care. Northern Ireland is good. Scotland is not as good as they think they are. Um, <laughs> Wales is pretty good. Um, and, and there are a number of other interesting centers down here, including the Health Information, uh, Health Information Challenge led out of Oxford of the major centers in the southeast, which has got terrific data. So this is moving very, very quickly. And one of the interesting observations from the U.S. is that in the U.S., they sort of jumped, they've got a real problem with longitudinal data. So there's an issue because 15% of people in any healthcare system move their healthcare insurance every year. So if you start, five years later, there's nobody left. So your longitudinal data is lousy. But they did get everybody digitized. And the way they did it is they said, just to be clear, you're not getting paid unless it's digitized data. And literally, within six months, the entire country was digitized. So, I mean, there are ways to do this if they want to turn the heat up. And I suspect that's what will happen uh, in the near future. Now, why do we need large numbers of data sets. And this is, a, um, this is an interesting slide that shows the kind of information that gets so much better when you have large numbers of patients. This is a, 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 a plot of the hazard ratio associated with different levels of systolic blood pressure in different age groups. So the young age group is here and the middle and old and the likes. But if you do that with 40,000 patients, actually you can't really tell what's going on, can you? So that doesn't, these are confidence intervals. These are the dots and the confidence intervals are extremely wide. This is Kazem Remini's data from the George Institute. And he's extended that to 400,000 patients. And you can start to now see that actually for different age groups, it becomes rather clearer as to what's going on. 
But it's only really when you get to very large numbers of patients, and here he's done it with 4.3 million people, that this becomes really, the confidence intervals go boom, you know exactly what's going on, and what you realize is that actually this is where you see these substantial increase in risk with increasing systolic blood pressure. When you get to be my age, it doesn't really make any difference about what your blood pressure is because it's all bad no matter what happens. Um, so, but, but, you know, that kind of powerful epidemiological data can really only be available if you're using large-scale information. And here's another slide from Kazem which shows the risk associated with atrial fibrillation for these various diseases in an NHS population. Again, 40,000 patients, you can't really tell what's going on. They all cross uh, an uh, odds ratio one. With 400,000 people, you start to see how that's, those are getting tighter. But you really get the, this kind of data here, which looks much better with hazard ratios, which are um, interesting across this whole set of, of um, uh, um, outcomes on the left-hand side. So... Uh, the electronic records, I think, are going to be hugely powerful in this big data agenda for medicine. And so will this, um, which is a, a new field, which is the field of digital health. And this is a whole set of new tools for sensing a wide range of physiological parameters to track patients uh, uh, in real time. Everything from ECGs, uh, to temperature, to uh, oxygen saturations. Lionel Tarasenko here in biomedical engineering is one of the great global leaders in this field. This is a hugely powerful set of technologies that I think was going to generate a, an additional richness to the data sets that we have available. Now here, I think it's, it's quite important to differentiate between what I view as being real health-related data. I know everybody will say, oh, I've got it on my iPhone, it's all fine. I know how many steps I took. Um, but the truth is, I, I think where we'll get real uplift is much better quantitative digital data from sensors that are measuring things which are of real physiological importance rather than just steps or stair staircases that you've climbed. I, I saw, I, I keep getting pitched to by people who have these things, and I saw some guy from UCL the other day who came up and said, I've got this fantastic digital device. And you put it on, and when you wake up in the morning, you can read it, and you can tell how good a sleep you had. <laughs> and I said, I usually know how good a sleep I've had when I get up in the morning. I don't think I need a device to tell me. So I think there's a lot of people out there trying to make money, it's not a bad thing, but there is, I think, still huge power between in, in this arena. Uh, and much of this is being driven by the access to the internet. So we did have a little blip of this around tel telemedicine about 15 years ago, but the reality is the internet has really made this much more powerful and much more effective and, and will actually help drive this agenda of increasing capabilities in digital medicine. Now, I, I, I want to give you some examples of where these things are being used and some, give you some other examples which have got a local, again, a local flavor to them. This is all work done, being done in Oxford, many people associated with the new Big Data Institute. But there's, imaging turns out to be a hugely rich source of digital data. And that can come from a variety of sets. This is work 
um, done to try and look at facial recognition patterns. And so it turns out that you can acquire very powerful uh, image analysis using a variety of techniques to define different, different facial patterns. And of course, we know that many pediatric syndromes that are associated particularly with developmental delay are also associated with characteristic um, uh, facial features. And it's possible to actually define those with a great deal of precision that can help uh, in, a, in a diagnostic paradigm with those patients. And, of course, you can also use this to actually help sort out diseases like Marfan syndrome as being done here. So the ability to use image analysis, facial recognition, x-rays, radiology broadly defined, digital pathology is again a domain where we've actually left most of the information unexamined and we uh, respond to relatively limited bits of information in a digital sense when we look at those images, but in fact there's much more there to be harvested. And, and this is, I think, quite a good example of that, which is um, uh, histopathology. Uh, as you know, the grades of breast cancer um, are um, rather unpredictably uh, unpredictable in terms of outcome when they're analyzed by pathologists. So this is grade two breast cancer, this is grade three breast cancer. It's got the, the, the difference has got to do with nuclear conformation, tubular formation, and the overall structure of the, of the uh, tissue. Um, the, the ability of pathologists, though, to identify the patients in this group or that group who are going to do well and badly is very poor indeed. And in fact, you can pass these slides around and you'll get a completely different answer. If you get the 10 pathologists, you'll get 10 different answers. And that's not to criticize the pathologists. It's quite a complicated, very, very, very difficult problem. But one for which there is now an answer, and the answer comes from digitized methodology. And this is work no, this is not Oxford work. This comes from Daphne Kohler at Stanford, with whom we've got a collaboration around our big data pr program. And what she's done is to say, well, actually, there must be more information here than what the pathologists look at. So when the pathologists look at breast cancer, they look at mostly those epithelial cells, because those are the cancer cells. And uh, that's how they try and predict who's going to do well and who's going to do badly. So what Daphne said is, let's take all the information on the slide. So you break it up into a variety of different pieces. Some of them are the epithelial cells, some of the stromal cells, the different shapes of the nuclei, the different uh, cellular populations in the stroma. And, and, you, and you classify those systematically so that they can be analyzed in a digital fashion and some of these are very detailed uh, relational features. So, you know, the relationship between epithelial regions and, and the nuclei associated with them, the relationship between regular and irregular nuclei, the characteristics of the stromal nuclei and the like. So there are about 600 of these classifiers, and you can do that systematically. And then what you do is you take a cohort of patients who were diagnosed with breast cancer 10 years ago, and some of them have done well, and some of them have done badly. So you take the ones who've done well, and you take the ones who've done badly, and then you say to the computer, well, what are the differences between those and those? And what you find out is that 
the computer immediately comes up with an interesting algorithm which defines the breast cancer morphology and defines a dramatically different, different pattern of survival. Uh, this is grade one cases. You can see that the computer has a really hard time dif differentiating. But in grade two and grade three cases, it's quite easy to identify a population of patients who are going to do well as opposed to those who do badly based on the characteristics of those samples. Uh, and, and so that very powerful result. Of course, when uh, Daphne Kohler said, um, hey, guys, I can extract much more useful information out of that than you can, the pathologists all said, well, we don't believe you. So she went off and got another cohort, which was, from the, in this case, from the Netherlands. This is from Vancouver. And what she said was, well, we'll do this. We'll now do this blind and see where we get to. And, of course, she got exactly the same result. But when she gave these slides to the um, pathologists, they did about 40% worse than she did in terms of identifying those who were going to do badly and those who were going to do well. So this is a really good example of how systematic image analysis of, of pathology sections can be hugely helpful. Now, the field of infectious disease in the whole area of precision medicine is the one that's led the way. It's partly because pathogens are a lot simpler. They're easier to characterize. Uh, and we've understood them for an awful lot longer than most of the complex human diseases. And one of the interesting observations that Nick White, who runs our Asian program in tropical medicine here in Oxford, made many years ago is that when you're looking at resistance to malaria, to any new anti-malarial drug, and this applies to chloroquine, it applies to mefloquine, it applies to artemisinin, malarum, the lot, that those instances of um, resistance always occurred first in two villages in western Cambodia, and this is one of them, not very big, surrounded with landmines, difficult to get in and out, but the mosquitoes can get in and out, and this is where resistance to all those drugs began first. So that's a pretty interesting observation. So uh, how do you pick that apart? Well, Dominic Kiotowski's picked it apart rather systematically. This is his paper in Nature Genetics a couple of years ago. He's collected thousands, literally thousands, of samples from all over the world and characterized them based on their genetic variation to try and map, coordinate those with the, the geographical mapping of those pathogens. Of course, what he's found is that, and th th this is just basically a plot that shows the differences at a sequence level between those sequences and what he's found is that most of the uh, malaria falciparum pathogens sit way over here, and they're from, from um, mostly from Africa, but also a bit from Asia. But th this group here, the Western Cambodia set, are clearly diff distinct uh, from the majority of pathogens. And, and those sequence differences, uh, which are also reflected on this slide, which shows these are the, these are the, the, the standard um, malaria sequences which sit in this part of this three-way plot. And you can see how there's a huge variation in the ones that are obtained from Western Cambodia. And the reason for that is that these guys have got mutations in the mutator loci that are responsible for correcting mutations that are achieved in the genome of the parasite. And as a result, you end up with a hypermutatable form of malaria 
that lives in Western Cambodia. So when you expose it to a drug, they mutate away from the drug very quickly. They generate their resistance mechanisms. They get spread worldwide. And you will never solve malaria resistance unless you eliminate that pathogen that's present in a relatively small area in Cambodia. So that, that's a really good example of how a combination of really clear clinical epidemiology and large-scale genetic analysis can precisely divine the disease. These two are characters, again, from the infectious disease arena, Koch and Pasteur. This was the first area of so-called precision medicine. But this has been taken further by Derek Crook and his colleagues at the hospital. Again, this is a terrific story about large data sets and what they can be used for in a clinical setting. For those of you who are great fans of Chinese restaurants, you may be interested, and, and Derek can give you the addresses of these precise spots, but this is a really good example of how public health is changing because the variation in this salmonella pathogen could be traced to come back from a common origin that produced these outbreaks of salmonella in a variety of restaurants around the country. But the most interesting thing is that this was sourced from eggs uh, that came from Czechoslovakia uh, in Eastern Europe, and they could actually identify, trace, trace it back to exactly the colony of chickens that were causing the trouble. But this really shows the power of using molecular fingerprinting to help uh, in the public health agenda. Uh, Derek's most impressive work, in my view, is in this whole area of TB uh, resistance prediction. TB is a very difficult um, bug to grow. It takes months to get an understanding of its resistance pattern. But it does mutate very slowly, so it is possible to track and trace the nature of any single uh, pathogen back to see where it comes from. It gets, has a very slow mutation rate. Uh, and it's got a non-recombining genome. So again, large scale, Derek's collected large, literally thousands of isolates and has used those in a machine learning, a learning algorithm to try and identify the genes and variants that are associated with TB resistance. And the reason he's doing that is because the best way to diagnose and understand TB will be to sequence it, which you can do very quickly, literally with the nanopore technology, literally in, in an hour, uh, and from that, one should be able to interpret the genome to be able to tell who's resistant to what. And in order to do this, one needs to have a widely diversified set of strains, and this is where Derek gets his strains from, uh, all over the world uh, through a large network. And he brings those together, sequences them, and has been able to uh, identify the genetic basis for um, uh, uh, resistance to all these anti-tuberculous uh, anti drugs to a really very, very high specificity and a pretty good sensitivity for most of them. And this is a work in pro progress. And you can see that depending on the antibiotic, so this is rifampicin, you can see that he's rapidly approaching, as he adds resistance variants, he's rapidly approaching a situation where he can identify every genetic variant that's responsible for rifampicin resistance. Same with isoniazid. There are some, some anti-tuberculous drugs where he's got some ways to go, but this is, this is, this is happening extremely quickly. Um, and uh, th this, is the, this provides you with, with the statistical data that shows the, the likelihood of 
an isolate being resistant to isoniazid um, when a SNP is whether when a, when a genetic variant is present or when a genetic variant is present, how likely it is that the resistance will be there. So what he ends up with, of course, is from these large data sets, is a huge, uh, hugely accurate ability to predict the species, to predict uh, drug susceptibilities. The, th this diagnostic has a much faster turnaround time than conventional microbiology in the lab. And just this year, they've broken the, the, the cost of per specimen, which is currently at 171 pounds when you're doing it with whole genome sequencing, which turns out to be less than if you use conventional microbiology. So microbiology is now going to change. There's another great story, which I won't spend too much time on, except to say that we, though you will all remember um, when Alan Milburn was busy um, deep cleaning the hospital wards to try and get rid of Clostridium difficile, and it didn't seem to be doing any good. Well, the reason for that, of course, is that this epidemic of Clostridium difficile, which peaked in 2007, was in fact due to um, the um, uh, overuse of quinolone antimicrobials, which also peaked in 2007. But what uh, Derek and Tim Peter have been able to do is beautifully show that you can show that when you stopped using quinolones, and the edict came centrally to stop using quinolones uh, at scale in hospitals, the, the resistance populations uh, to uh, uh, the quinolones, which are shown here in blue, red, and black, disappear very rapidly over quite a short period of time. And what, of course, is going on here is that these turn out to be particularly pathogenic, and they've been selected by the quinolones. So you've actually driven those into the population. And the way to solve the problem is to stop prescribing quinolones because they also carry with them, with them a fitness disadvantage. So if you put them side by side to an ordinary clostridium in the absence of quinolones, they flop immediately, which it shows right here. And that, and that actually is a really interesting observation because it may have a much wider implication for our, uh, the way we deal with antimicrobial resistance in populations. You can see here, these are the Clostridium difficile cases, and they essentially fall off a map from the time that that's been changed. And, and there's some very interesting, this is, this is just evolutionary trees. These are the resistance, uh, these, are the, these are the resistance strains, the ones resistant to quinolones, and you can see that they've got very short evolutionary time frames where the conventional sensitive strains have got much longer evolutionary periods. So that these things have been selected very quickly by the exposure to a sharp, sharp blast of, of a antimicrobial. And, and you can tell that from the phylogenetic branch lengths. That's a, that's a bit of genetics. Let me talk very quickly about another great story in this domain of how we get more precise medicines for disease, and this guy was one of the great recruits that Peter Radcliffe has made to the Department of Medicine. His name's Ian Pavord. He was in Leicester, um, and he is, I think, one of the most impressive asthma doctors anywhere in the world. And he made the interesting observation that, in fact, if you look at patients with asthma, they were not all the same. And as you know, we haven't developed a new drug for asthma for 25 years, and the one we last developed was Singular, which doesn't work anyway. So it's not been a great run in terms of the development of new therapeutics for this disease. 
And what he observed clinically was pretty interesting, and that was that um, the patients who puff and wheeze and suck on their blowers all day long, in fact, don't actually have disease which leads to many hospital admissions and exacerbations. Um, And the ones that do get severe consequences are ones that actually tend not to actually use a lot of inhalers, but are ones that have very high levels of eosinophils in their sputum. And this was a, this is, this is a, this is a biomarker which he described, and then that was followed up quite quickly by the observation at Genentech, who had been busy looking at the nature of transcript profiling, RNA sequencing of the cells obtained from bronchial lavage, that in fact there was a biological marker called Perry-Austin, which was expressed, overexpressed in the blood of these patients. Uh, and then the Scandinavians were able to show that exhaled nitric oxide defines the same population. So there are two forms of asthma. There's a non-inflammatory form that doesn't have any of these inflammatory markers. But when you have high eosinophils in blood or sputum, you exhale a lot of nitric oxide, you have high periostin levels, and you activate your TH2. That is a different disease, and it is a completely different disease. Yes, they all wheeze, but that is a different disease. And once you know that, then the world looks quite different. And this is a good example of one of many drugs that works much better in patients who've got where you've defined as having high or low eosinophils. This is, this is um, FEV1 studies in, a, um, in an asthma population. These are the patients that, that Ian defined as having an inflammatory form of asthma. These are the non-inflammatory form. The drug works extremely well here. doesn't work at all there. Now, in a previous world, these would have all been together. And what you get when you do that is you get a very non-significant result. And the same applies. This is the IL-13 antagonist from Genentech. Same thing. Uh, This is the total cohort. Not much difference. Overlapping confidence intervals in many cases. Low periostin, no effect. High periostin, the equivalent of high eosinophil levels. Hugely uh, impressive data on that study. And what that has allowed to happen, that use of a set of biological markers is that there is now a whole tidal wave of new drugs which are either approved or about to be approved, because they all work, which are highly effective for asthma. So for the first time, 25 years before we developed a drug that works, and now we've got a whole ton, and this is entirely the result of precision medicine, the ability to define your patient population well. The IL-13s from Genentech and AstraZeneca, the IL-4, IL-13 from Regeneron, Glaxo's anti-IL-5, two CRTH2 inhibitors. This is, it's been a great story for asthma therapeutics, and it was Ian Pavard who really led the charge in that domain. So it's been a, there's been an evolution of our ability to define disease. It's been driven by getting large sets of data of a whole variety of different kinds in a digitized format so that they can be analyzed and individual patient populations can be characterized in much more detail. But I think one of the powerful things is that there's no country on the planet that has the assets to do this now at scale as the UK. And I think a lot of people go about their business and they say, well, that's not for me, I don't really know anything about it. But I just want to make this point that working together across all these funding agencies, so these people used to fight with each other like crazy, 
Val will remember this, but they used to scrap like there's no tomorrow. They now work um, very well together. And together they've created an amazing set of reagents which are available to the community to do big data. And this makes the UK the place in the world to do big data. And the first of these huge successes was Biobank UK, which I'll talk about in a minute, but, but, and other prospective cohorts, including Val's Million Women study. There's now a national bioresource facility, which is there to house large sets of biological samples, so all the kind of genomics and stuff that we see uh, are taking advantage of the, the national bioresource, which is based in Milton Keynes. The, um, the availability of whole genome sequencing capabilities pioneered here in Oxford through the WGS 500 study and now Genomics England, the 100,000 Genomes Project, again globally unique and miles ahead of everybody else, and the ability to analyze those large data sets. And, and the FAR Institute is the formal structure which has been set up by the MRC to do that, but there are many institutions, particularly Oxford, who've got a leading position in that domain. So we are really uniquely positioned. You know, just to remind you, President Obama made a very big noise about his precision medicine initiative. He set a billion dollars aside to do it. Um, they've been scrapping about it ever since. And at best, they're going to get a knockoff of Biobank about 10 years later than we did, um, which, without very good longitudinal data. So you, we, there is no one who's competitive with the UK in this domain at the moment. The Biobank's the flagship. We, I think we should be, it's a national program, but I think we should be very proud of the fact that Rory Collins and the team here were the ones that made it successful. Um, and it's been hugely powerful because it's generated a data set around 500,000 participants with a whole set of standard physiological variables, but also very detailed subsets of data that include retinal images, hearing tests, vascular reactivity. So this is, I mean, this is big data like no one's seen big data anywhere on the planet. It's stored sample storage in Manchester, which houses both plasma, urine, and DNA samples from 500,000 people, uh, and a whole set of enhanced phenotyping programs which have been led, um, again, by Rory and his team, um, including a whole set of web-based assessments, and Val was really uh, uh, central to generating these new approaches to trying to get much better dietary data, which has always been a problem, there's much better cognitive function data, occupational health, accelerometers. Of course, there's lab assays. I'll talk about the genomic assays and the imaging in a minute. But the main program to, to image 100,000 people with MR of the brain, heart, and body, as well as 3D carotid ultrasound, DEXA scannings. That, I mean, this is a huge and very valuable resource. This is just to reflect on the power that one will get out of a whole set of images in 100,000 people. But the genotyping is remarkable. Peter Donnelly and the Gene Center created a, an array which would detect 821,000 different genetic variants around the genome. That's now been applied. The, f the release of the first 150,000 patients has gone online. The rest will be available. The whole 500,000 will be available in the summer. And this is a remarkable asset because one can impute a large number of additional variants in addition to the ones that are available. So 
that's, that's a wonderful story uh, and one that's really generating huge amount of interest in the big data space. I've talked a little bit about the record linkage that's available and this is getting better all the time. And you can see the numbers of patients that will actually have incident health events over, uh, 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 over these various different timeframes uh, and hospital admissions. So we're talking about a whole set of new powerful um, uh, data sets. And that's supported, of course, by other cohorts, the Kaduri cohort, which has got 500,000 Chinese people being tracked by health insurance records. It follows a very similar line and is being managed out of the Richard Dahl building, Val's Million Woman Study, which I won't speak more about. Let me just quickly take you through the last piece of this story, which is how we get whole genome sequencing into this mix. This was really driven by, again, a study here in Oxford, which was the WGS 500 study, which was really set up to test whether whole genomes, sequencing of whole genomes, all three billion base pairs in individuals, could be helpful in trying to define the etiology of disease. And that study looked at a whole range of different diseases across many different um, clinical uh, uh, areas. The consultants were written to, there are some in the audience who contributed samples to this. It was a great story. And it emerged with this plot, which very simply shows that, if you forget the triangles, but you can see that there's quite a large number of genes that emerged from that, which are brand new based on the information that was given. There were also a number of known genes that had a different phenotype, which was interesting. There were a set of known genes for the disorder, which also appeared, and then a whole set of candidate genes, which are being worked on one at a time to try and identify their role in causality. And this is just a summary of some of the stuff that came off in the early studies, novel disease genes, novel regulatory variants, novel phenotypes. So what that led to was the prime minister trying to tackle this problem, which is the fact that the NHS is, is I think, probably um, the most effective organization in the world for failing to translate important discoveries. They missed the CT scanner, hard to believe, but completely missed, discovered in the UK, missed by the NHS for decades. They missed the MRI scanner, discovered in the UK and missed for decades. And they missed monoclonal antibodies, discovered in the UK and not applied at scale in the UK till well after the rest of the Western world. So he was not going to miss out on genetics and genomics and launch this program, which is Genomics England. And the idea of this is to uh, first of all, provide patient benefit. Secondly, bring some more innovation into the NHS. Thirdly, to help restructure NHS laboratory services, which were very much designed 30 years ago for genomics. Uh, and fourthly, to create this huge data platform, which will incorporate all this data, phenotypic data and others, and to use that to, for patient benefit and economic growth. And this is the MIT annual 50 smartest companies on the planet. It's extremely North American biased because there are only three European com companies on this list. Siemens is one, BMW is the other. But guess who got up, got up right up here? Genomics England in the top 50 globally. So that's, that made everybody very happy in Whitehall. So, um, so th I think that's a, that's a sort of whistle-stop tour UK is a terrific place to do this. It has enormous potential to change medicine. This is a, a mock-up of 
the new building we're building in Headington and we'll be topping it out next week or the week after and it'll hold about 350 um, data scientists who will be busy trying to dissect some of these important bits of information from the healthcare to try and define disease better, help us predict disease, natural history better, and make our therapies much more effective. And it's here, I think, there will be an enormous solution to some of the financial challenges that are currently confronting all healthcare systems. So thank you very much.